You're listening to the second and final part of Unexplained, Season 7, Episode 15, In His Eyes a Flaming Glow. The Russian Empire was built on the notion of absolute autocracy, placing unbridled power in the hands of a single supreme ruler known as the Tsar. Even as the empire was forced to gradually adapt over time, that founding principle remained. But by the mid to late 1900s, Tsar Nicholas II of the Romanov dynasty whose family had ruled since the early 1600s, had become a supporting player in his own kingdom. The name on everyone's lips, the one man that nobody could stop talking about, was Grigory Rasputin. Every single person in St. Petersburg had an opinion about Rasputin, or Father Grigory, as his supporters called him. The enigmatic mystic monk, arrived in the city seemingly out of thin air, and in the space of just a few years, had become one of the Tsar's most trusted advisers. To some, Rasputin was a revered and inspirational figure, a financially impoverished farmer who'd used faith to pull himself up from his humble beginnings, endured many hard years as a wandering holy man, and had now earned his place in the Winter Palace, next to Tsar Nicholas II. To others, Rasputin was anything but holy, perhaps even demonic. His dishevelled appearance and long, greasy hair suggested to some that although Rasputin no longer lived in the wilderness, evidently the wilderness still lived in him and that was nothing compared to the apparent filthiness of his private life. Rumours abounded of Rasputin's womanising, his regular visits to brothels, and his addiction to sin. Some believed he was a high-ranking member of the Kluste, a clandestine religious sect, which split from the Russian Orthodox Church during the 17th century. The Kluste sought religious enlightenment, through what they described as ecstatic rituals, orgies. According to the rumours, Rasputin was said to have adapted the Kluste's doctrine into his own hedonistic belief system, which promoted sinful, debaucherous behaviour as a means of getting closer to God. It was said, too, that he'd even extended this practice to include the Tsar's wife, Alexandra. Ever since Rasputin had seemingly miraculously healed the royal couple's only son, Alexei, he'd become a palace fixture. Both Nicholas and Alexandra appeared to spend more time with Rasputin than with each other. So naturally, with all the rumours about his womanising ways, many drew their own conclusion. Regardless of whether any of these rumours were true or not, what was undoubtable was Rasputin's unusual hold over the royal couple. To some, it was as though he'd put a spell on them. (laughs) 
despite his general air of unkempt wildness, what made Rasputin so captivating was his gaze. His eyes were eerily pale, and his stare was penetrating, almost hypnotic. With huge swathes of the city's population attending seances, having their palms read, or seeking medical help from spiritual healers, it wasn't at all hard for people to believe that Rasputin was quite literally hypnotizing the Tsar and Tsarina. How else to explain his unprecedented access to the couple and his unnervingly quick ascent into their inner circle? Rasputin himself did little to dispel these rumours. At parties, he would brag about his influence over the couple and openly claim that he had the supreme ruler under his command. Despite Rasputin's apparent lack of tact, when he was out on the town, it seemed the royal couple were either oblivious to how all of this looked, or simply didn't care, too addicted to the validation he offered them. Ever since the first Russian Revolution in 1905, Nicholas's power had been steadily waning. He'd managed to stave off an all-out revolt by passing the October Manifesto, which granted civil liberties to citizens and vastly weakened his autocratic rule. At the time, he'd felt he had no other choice, and the decision had haunted him ever since. Within only a few years, political unrest was mounting again. By the early 1910s, Russia was once again overwhelmed by strikes and protests as more and more of its citizens began to question the system. But Rasputin encouraged the Tsar to ignore it. He should have confidence in himself and in his authority, he told him. He also reminded him that the will of the people was inconsequential. He had been chosen by God for this position. The Russian Orthodox Church was also emphatic on this point. Its doctrine stated that the Tsar was appointed by God, so any challenge to the Tsar was in effect an insult to the Lord. Nicholas was emboldened by Rasputin's unwavering conviction. Trusting no one else, he began to consult him directly on political matters asking for his guidance on what ministers to appoint to his inner circle. Rasputin's rise to power seemed as unstoppable as it was inexplicable. Effectively, he seemed to be secretly running the country. To everyone outside, Nicholas was seen increasingly as a weak and indecisive leader whose every move was being orchestrated by a dangerous charlatan puppet master. Something had to be done about it. In June of 1914, Rasputin travelled back to his home village of Pokrovskoy to visit his wife and children, where he received a hero's welcome. After all, it wasn't common for people to ever leave this remote Siberian village, let alone make it all the way into the royal court. Meanwhile, hundreds of miles away, 
one young farmer wasn't so pleased. 33-year-old Kionya Guseva met Rasputin several years before, during his travelling pilgrim days, and had been impressed by him. Kionya's face was striking, not least of all because her nose had been almost entirely eaten away by disease. But unlike so many others, Father Grigori seemed not to notice it. It was all the proof she needed that he was indeed blessed with religious powers. That was, until another priest, a rival of Rasputin called Iliador, took Hionya under his wing and opened her eyes to the truth. Rasputin was a false prophet, he said, a sinner and a violator of women. She'd been hearing stories about him ever since, about his womanizing, his debauched parties, his occult powers. Over time, she became fixated on Rasputin in a different way. One night, in a small wooden shack, hundreds of miles from Pokrovskoy, Kionya sat reading a familiar passage in her Bible under the dim light of a solitary candle. Then fire from the Lord came down and burned the sacrifice. When all the people saw it, they fell down to the ground, crying, The Lord is God, the Lord is God. Then Elijah said, Capture the prophets of Baal, don't let any of them run away. When the false prophets were captured, Elijah led them down to the Kishon Valley, where he slaughtered them all. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Now go, eat and drink, because a heavy rain is coming. Kionya read the story over and over again. With each reading, the words seemed to burn brighter and brighter on the page. It was all becoming clear to her. She knew exactly what she had to do. On June 29th, 1914, the day after he arrived in Pokrovskoy, Rasputin left his family's home and walked out into the afternoon sunshine. As the gate closed behind him, he turned his head to see a woman in black walking quickly towards him. The woman's face was hidden behind a white cloth so that only her eyes were visible. Assuming the woman wanted some kind of blessing, Rasputin stopped and locked eyes with her. The woman stopped too, seeming suddenly a little hesitant. Then she bowed to him. For a brief moment, Rasputin saw the cloth fall from the woman's face to reveal a shocking wound where her nose should have been. Something glinted in the sun, then Rasputin felt a cold, sharp pain in his stomach. He looked down to see the woman's hand against his cassock and what was clearly a dagger disappearing into his body. Rasputin screamed in pain as the woman withdrew a 15-inch blade. In terror, he turned and ran 
as the woman chased him with the bloody dagger. Within seconds, a crowd had descended on the scene as several onlookers tackled the woman, now revealed to be Hionya Guseva. Rasputin collapsed to the ground from blood loss. That night, as Rasputin continued to lie unconscious, a doctor performed emergency surgery. Hionya's blade had damaged several of his internal organs, and although the surgery was a success, the doctor warned Rasputin's family that he would be lucky to survive the night. Rasputin spent the next few days dipping in and out of consciousness, barely breathing. Whenever he did come to, he was completely delirious. A priest arrived to administer his last rites. Newspapers across the nation ran headlines announcing the assassination attempt. They said Rasputin was on his deathbed with no hope of survival. But then, one morning, Rasputin opened his eyes and sat up in bed. The following day, he was deemed well enough to be transferred to a hospital in Tumin, the nearest major city. In the end, despite immense blood loss and internal injuries, Rasputin made a full recovery. He had survived a mortal wound. As word spread of his remarkable recovery, more rumours began to fly that the legendary healer had healed himself. Rasputin was unkillable. Some weeks later, he returned to St. Petersburg, a legend, where he was greeted with open arms by the Tsar and Tsarina. They couldn't have been happier to see him return. They needed him now more than ever, because war was on the horizon. That summer of 1914, the mood in St. Petersburg was restless. The city ground to a halt amid hundreds of worker strikes. Another uprising seemed inevitable. Or as one newspaper put it, we are living on a volcano. But Tsar Nicholas was distracted from the domestic chaos by an even larger looming threat. The long-standing tensions between Russia and its neighbouring empire, Germany, were at boiling point. The German Kaiser, Wilhelm II, was Nicholas's cousin, and they'd always maintained a relatively friendly relationship. Now, though, it seemed family ties were no longer enough. In June, the assassination of Austria's Archduke Franz Ferdinand sparked the outbreak of war. As nations mobilised their militaries all across Europe, Russia found itself caught between its close ally Serbia and the hostile empires of Germany and Austria-Hungary. By August, the German government had declared war on Russia. At first, this proved to be a political win for the Tsar. War as a way of stoking up patriotism, even among those previously indifferent to such things, when your immediate survival is suddenly all that matters. And so, for the most part, the Russian people forgot about revolution 
as they rushed to defend their borders. Shortly after the declaration of war, Tsar Nicholas and Tsarina Alexandra made an appearance on the balcony of the Winter Palace. There, they were greeted by a huge exuberant crowd who chanted God Save the King together. After years of mounting resentment from the public, the Tsar felt beloved and powerful again. War had reinvigorated him. But not everybody shared the public's enthusiasm. Britain's King George V, another cousin of the Tsar, sent a letter pleading with Nicholas to demobilise the Russian army in the hope of de-escalating the conflict and avoiding an all-out world war. He, like many other allies, was concerned that the Tsar's judgement was compromised. He had become dangerously overconfident in his and Russia's capabilities and that the malign influence of Rasputin was to blame. But the Tsar refused to take heed. After all, was it King George who'd survived certain death, or Father Grigori, who better to trust than a clear vessel of the Lord himself? But now that Russia had entered the war, the stakes had never been higher, and the rumours about the mysterious, mystic monk, as Rasputin came to be known, grew ever wilder. Soon an allegation began to circulate that he had in fact been planted inside the royal court as a double agent and was leaking secrets to Germany. These rumours spread like wildfire among the Russian nobility, the church, and the general public. Over the years, several of the Tsar's allies tried to make him see what a mistake he was making. They told him that his dependence on Rasputin was affecting his reputation, that giving the mystic monk so much influence over policies and appointments was eroding the public's trust in him, the French magician, Papus, another of the Tsar and Tsarina's trusted confidants, was unequivocal, writing to the Tsarina at the end of 1915, Rasputin is a vessel like Pandora's box and contains all the vices, crimes and lusts of the Russian people. Should this vessel break, we shall immediately see these horrible contents spilled all over Russia. When Rasputin was informed of the letter by the Tsarina, he concurred. Why, I've told you that many a time. When I die, Russia will perish. Tsar Nicholas ignored all the warnings. To him, the benefits of Rasputin vastly outweighed the costs, and not only because he told him exactly what he wanted to hear. Rasputin also had a calming influence on Alexandra, who was prone to anxiety. Better ten Rasputins than one of the Empress's hysterical fits, as he once put it to Russia's Prime Minister. But what Nicholas dismissed as hysteria was in actuality an entirely rational response to an increasingly dangerous reality. 
If Alexandra felt a sense of impending doom, an unshakable fear that everything was about to fall apart, she was right. In the spring and summer of 1915, a woefully under-equipped Russian army suffered a series of devastating losses with thousands of Russian soldiers killed or taken prisoner by German forces. With few other options, commanders ordered a retreat and withdrew the Russian army from much of the Eastern Front. Tsar Nicholas was furious. Withdrawal was a sign of weakness, precisely the thing he'd been working so hard to avoid. But when officials tried to persuade him that the Russian army had bitten off more than it could chew, he dismissed them angrily. In August 1915, Nicholas made a fateful decision. Encouraged by both the silver-tongued Rasputin and by the Tsarina, he fired his uncle, Grand Duke Nicholas, the commander-in-chief of the Russian armies. And so the Tsar took control of them instead and departed immediately for the front lines. In his absence, the Tsarina Alexandra became the de facto reigning monarch, with Rasputin by her side as always. To many onlookers, it seemed the so-called mystic monk had finally achieved exactly what he wanted. He was now effectively ruling the entire country through Alexandra. All along the Eastern Front, freezing and starving Russian soldiers swapped stories about the many things they'd heard about Rasputin. Soon word was spreading that he'd recently tried to start a cholera epidemic in St. Petersburg using a shipment of poisoned apples secretly imported from Canada. The soldiers wondered why should they die in the mud while such a man reigns supreme at the Winter Palace. It was all just more fuel to the growing public resentment of the royal family and the wider ruling classes. It was clear to a growing number of the Russian nobility that if the monarchy had any chance of surviving, Rasputin had to be stopped by any means necessary. In mid-December 1916, Prince Felix Yusupov, the wealthiest man in Russia at the time, invited Rasputin to dinner at his home, the Yusupov Palace in St. Petersburg. Rasputin arrived a few nights later, the sound of a party in full swing coming from upstairs, indistinct chatter and the distant strains of Yankee Doodle Dandy being played on a gramophone. After greeting Rasputin at the door, Yusupov led him to the cellar and served him a glass of Madeira wine and a slice of cake. Unknown to Rasputin, there was no party upstairs, and both the wine and the cake were laced with a lethal dose of cyanide. Yusupov watched on eagerly as Rasputin ate the cake and drank the wine, and when he'd finished, he simply asked for another glass of the wine. 
Yusupov was stunned. Trying his best to hide his confusion, he poured Rasputin a second glass. Surely this would see him off, he thought. But Rasputin continued to drink, seemingly completely unaffected by the poison. With no other choice, Prince Yusupov was forced to lead Rasputin upstairs to the supposed party. Rasputin was then led into a room full of men, not party guests, but co-conspirators of Yusupov. As the large hulking frame of Rasputin stepped into the room, the men tried their best to hide their dismay. This dismay soon turned to fear. They'd always dismissed the stories about Rasputin's mystical powers, especially his supposed infallibility. And yet, here he was, two glasses of cyanide down, and not a hint of discomfort on his face. The men greeted him warmly and invited him to join them. After some time talking, Rasputin finally complained of a burning sensation in his stomach and a heavy head. Yusupov offered him another glass of the poisoned wine. Perhaps that might help, he said. Rasputin gladly accepted it. The men watched on again with barely concealed horror as the mystic monk finished off his third glass without any complaint. Slowly, as a few of the would-be assassins continued to engage Rasputin in conversation, a small group of them quietly excused themselves from the room. Moments later, the men who'd left met in a neighbouring room to discuss what on earth they should do next. The conversation descended into angry chaos. Finally, one man hit his breaking point. He strode back into the dining room, pulled out a pistol and shot Rasputin at close range. The bullet landed close to his heart, a deadly blow. Rasputin crumpled to the ground, unconscious and bleeding profusely. His breath grew laboured and ragged until finally it stopped. The men watched on with a mix of shock and relief, the smoke from the gun tailing off into the air. One of the men took a tentative step forward and stood over the body, then leapt back in horror as Rasputin's eyes shot open. As the men looked on numbly, a wild-eyed Rasputin staggered to his feet and launched himself at Prince Yusupov. It was as though the devil himself had entered him. He grabbed for Yusupov, but was pulled away by the other men. However, despite having just been shot in the heart, Rasputin was too strong for them. He broke from their grasp, stumbled out of the room, and disappeared down the darkened hallway. He made it into the courtyard outside, before the group finally caught up with him. Outside, in the freezing winter air, 
Under the pale light of a waning moon, Prince Yusupov and his men charged into the courtyard to find a man with lank black hair in a long black cassock stumbling away from them. His hand was clutched to his chest and a line of blood trailed behind him on the icy ground. Stop, they yelled. But the man, seemingly possessed, continued to stagger forward. A volley of gunfire rang out as a hail of bullets flew into Rasputin's back. Finally, he collapsed again, and this time he did not get back up. But Prince Yusupov was leaving nothing to chance. They bound Rasputin's hands and feet with thick rope and wrapped his body in a sheet of linen. They bundled him into a car and drove out to Petrovsky Island in the west of the city. Together, the assassins threw Rasputin's body into the freezing waters of the Neva River. They watched somberly as it slipped beneath the surface and into the black waters below, until the ripples gradually receded and the body could no longer be seen. Finally, having survived a stabbing, a poisoning, and a seemingly fatal gunshot wound, Grigory Rasputin was dead. The temperature dropped below zero that night, and the river froze almost solid. As a result, it took many days for the police to find Rasputin's body. When the icy corpse was finally recovered, an autopsy was conducted soon after, wherein water was found in Rasputin's lungs. After all that, he'd still been breathing when he hit the water. When news of Rasputin's death reached the public, people celebrated in the streets. Among their compatriots, Prince Yusupov and his fellow assassins were held up as patriotic heroes who'd done what had to be done to save the Russian Empire. For a while, the ruling classes hoped that getting rid of Rasputin would mean the Tsar began listening to their advice again, but the damage had already been done. In fact, Rasputin's murder only added to the sense of chaos and decline that had surrounded the palace for years and fueled the public's anger. By then, the war had been raging for more than two years and had taken a devastating toll on Russia's economy and infrastructure. The nation's morale was obliterated and with hundreds of thousands living in poverty and starvation, anti-monarchy sentiment came roaring back. In March of 1917, the Russian Revolution began. The streets of St. Petersburg were consumed by violent riots and Tsar Nicholas was forced to abdicate his throne. At long last, the Romanov dynasty had fallen and with it, the Russian Empire. It was seemingly just as Rasputin had predicted. When I die, Russia will perish. 
as furious hordes closed in on the Winter Palace, Nicholas, Alexandra, and the rest of their family made a desperate attempt to flee the city, but they were captured by the revolutionary forces and held prisoner in Siberia. On July 17, 1918, Nicholas, Alexandra, their five children, and several members of the imperial entourage who'd been imprisoned alongside them were executed. On the night they were slaughtered, each member of the family had an amulet around their necks. When they were removed from the bodies later that day, each were found to contain a small prayer and a photograph of Grigory Rasputin. This episode was written by Emma Dibden and Richard McLean-Smith. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard McLean-Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, were also produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, with stories never before featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.com.